Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. This is episode four of five in our series on the Bible's opening three chapters, Genesis 1 to 3. And in this episode, we address a doozy. (laughs) What went wrong with this good world God created? That's the question in chapter 3. Before we jump into that, a word about how we've been approaching this. We've been paying particular attention to reading these chapters in their ancient context. We do that first, and only then do we ask about the significance of these chapters for us today. This is crucially important. I go through it with my students all the time. Mm -hmm. We have to set aside our modern standards and expectations. We have to set aside what we think stories about creation ought to be. Okay. Only then can we hear those stories in their natural native context. When we force our own literary conventions and cultural conventions and worldviews onto ancient stories, those stories never have a chance to speak in their own voice and on their own terms. So in effect, when we ignore the context, we mute the original voice of the story. And as you and I have discussed, John, the sad result is that we end up with the story we want to hear instead of the story the author intended. And we see this all the time in some church settings. And just for the records, that is not exegesis. (laughs) Right. Ron, as the Old Testament guy, I'm (laughs) I'm naturally the one most keenly interested in reading this in its ancient context. But I also want to be clear, this doesn't mean that our modern concerns are irrelevant. Ah, Yeah, agreed. There are fascinating questions about how we human beings originated and how we reconcile what Scripture does, in fact, tell us with other things that we've learned. But as you've said repeatedly, when we approach the story in Scripture, we need to hear it first on its own terms. Right. Otherwise, we just drown out what it was trying to say. One more time, when we demand that an ancient text speak on our modern terms, then we cannot hear what it intends to tell us. Well, we left off in our last episode after the story in Genesis 2. It was the second of two creation stories packed into the first two chapters of Genesis, and it was a story that focused on the creation of human beings. At the end of that story, creation stood before God as God intended. And the man and woman in the garden had nothing to hide. In chapter three, (laughs) something goes wrong. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. (laughs) And that's where we're headed in this episode. The chapter raises a lot of questions. So let's go see what it says. All right. Like I've already said, Genesis 3 is a doozy. So let's be clear about how we got where we are right now. In Genesis 1 through 2, God gave order and structure to the world. But this also meant God gave order and structure to God's relationship with human beings. In creation, humans had their role, their purpose to fulfill as it related to God's will for the earth. As Genesis describes it, God gave some further definition to the divine human relationship by setting a standard. That standard amounted to a boundary around human beings. And it's no surprise that the boundary was consistent with their place as created beings. Their roles were rightfully defined by God. Yep, the command God gave was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we talked about this a good deal in the last episode. Eating from the tree of good and evil didn't mean merely learning the difference between good and evil or learning what was right and wrong. It meant grasping for the power to define good and evil, the power to say, this is good, that is bad. 
Exactly. By eating fruit from that particular tree, humans would take for themselves the role of determining what is good, what advances life, and what is evil, that is, what hinders or destroys life. When they do that, though, humans are very clearly putting themselves outside the relationship they were designed to have with God and outside of their created purpose. In other words, they would not be aligning themselves with life, but instead with its opposite, death. God had essentially told them, when you eat from that tree, you will surely die. I don't think this is a dichotomy that had fully dawned on me. The other tree is the tree of life. The choice Adam and Eve have to make is between the tree that gives them life and the tree that doles out death. Not that there was anything wrong with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It just didn't belong to human beings to take anything from that tree. You got it. Exactly. The choice was life or not life. That is, death. With all of that clearly on our minds, let's turn our attention now to chapter 3. The chapter opens with the introduction of a new character, the serpent. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? <laughs> yes. Asps. Very dangerous. <laughs> Yes. The Indiana Jones movies do seem to pick up on, what should we call it, a natural antipathy that we humans have to snakes. However, I want to point out that the Hebrew word used here is potentially more broad than just snake. Ah, okay. I want to stick with the word serpent for now, just to keep that distinction clear. Got it. Okay. Well, in the first verse of chapter three, the serpent actually speaks. And that's curious enough in itself, but we'll come back to that. The serpent speaks to the woman and what it does is to direct all attention to God's one prohibition. It does this by intentionally misquoting God's words. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, we, the readers, know that God didn't actually say that. Right. In fact, God said almost the opposite. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but not from one tree only. That prohibited tree was, as we just said, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one more time, because this is so important, the knowledge of good and evil does not mean merely obtaining an intellectual grasp of certain information. It isn't just being aware that good and evil exist and what they are. It's a matter of assuming the prerogative to decide what gives life and what does not. It's usurping those definitions for ourselves instead of leaving to God what's rightfully God's. Right. I'm confident in saying the words of the serpent and the surrounding context make it very clear there's far more to this tree than just providing information to the man and the woman. Fair enough. But back to the story. The woman tries to correct the error when she answers the serpent, but she makes a mistake of her own. Mm -hmm. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, she says, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, God did not, in fact, say not to touch it, although that would probably have been good advice on its own. Right. You can see that when it comes to what God's word actually is here, things are a little shaky. Well, the serpent moves on from challenging what God said to challenging God's veracity, God's truthfulness. In effect, it argued, nah, you're not going to die. In fact, you'll be more alive than ever. Eat and your eyes will be open. Be like God. Shape the order of creation. Determine right and wrong. <laughs> yes, yes. So under those false pretenses, she decides that all this looks and sounds good, and she eats the one fruit in the whole garden that God had said was not given to her and the man. So the focus landed exactly where the serpent was aiming then, on the forbidden tree. 
Yep, the quest of humanity became a quest of power, not for life, as God had purposed. She eats, gives some to her husband, who also eats, and the serpent's promise that their eyes would be opened actually comes true, okay. but not in the way it had said. Okay. Their eyes were opened all right, but open to their guilt and to the reality that for the first time, they stood outside of their intended relationship with the Creator. They were isolated and vulnerable. For the first time, they had something to hide. All right, John, bad things have just been unleashed. Just how bad has yet to be revealed. But what just happened? What have these human beings done? Again, in the context of the story, as it was originally intended. The man and the woman wanted more than what God had provided. Mm -hmm. They had everything they needed, but they desired to be God or to be God's equal, not to be what God had created them to be. They were created to live under God, but instead, as we see, the woman obeys the serpent and the man obeys her. In eating the fruit, neither obeys God. Well, when we opened, we mentioned that there's this new character, the serpent. The serpent seems to be causing a lot of trouble. We've got centuries, even millennia of speculation about what just happened here, <laughs> but let's try to roll all that back. What's an ancient Israelite likely to hear in this story? Well, an ancient hearer or reader of this story would have understood immediately that the woman was talking to a supernatural being, not just a startlingly vocal member of the animal kingdom. <laughs> okay. The woman was in God's realm, where God was present and providing for humankind. Remember, God also had a heavenly council or an entourage of supernatural beings around him in some way. I seem to recall you wanted to talk way more about that, but we don't have time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll just leave it there. But we do remember that he did speak to this heavenly council in Genesis 1. Right. God ruled in Eden and entrusted his rule over the rest of the earth to his images who represented him, that is, the humans. Right. The garden was divine territory. So the reader isn't expecting everything to behave according to the ordinary laws of nature that prevailed in the reader's world. And as I understand it, animal speaking is not entirely uncommon in literature from around this time. Right. When animals speak in ancient Near Eastern literature, it's a function either of magic or of some kind of divine communication or divine manifestation. A talking animal would clearly signal that God's or magical forces of some sort are at work. There's nothing whatsoever in the text that tells us something about ancient zoology. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Nor is it suggesting there was a time in the deep past when all or some animals could naturally speak. We go way off the rails of the context when we head down those roads. Fair enough. To the original reader, the talking serpent was clearly a heavenly being of some sort. Yes, specifically one who, we will discover shortly, has departed from God's purposes. In its arrogance, the serpent seeks to interfere with those purposes. The story intends to lead the reader there, not to a visualization and a zoological discussion of the serpent. Mm -hmm. By the way, there are examples from the ancient Near East of winged serpents guarding divine thrones, or the thrones of godlike rulers, like King Tut from Egypt's New Kingdom period. Okay. Uh, with that in mind, it's possible that this story was making an even more direct association with God's heavenly court. 
But in any case, it's safe to say the serpent that appears in Genesis 3.1 is some sort of heavenly being. Like you said, Ron, it is true that this serpent is compared to the beasts of the field in that verse, but that's because the serpent is not one of them, not one of the beasts of the field, not because it's simply an extraordinary example from their own number. Okay. But while we're talking about this character, Ron, I have to point out something the story clearly does not say. Nowhere does this story say that the serpent is Satan or the devil. All we know is that this is a serpent, nothing more. Yes, uh, you and I spent some time discussing this. The connection between this story in Genesis and whatever we call Satan or the devil comes much later. Right. Now, to be clear, a character called the Satan does show up elsewhere in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. He's an adversary of some sort, perhaps most notoriously playing the role of accuser in Job. Yeah. We also see a character like this in Zechariah chapter 3. But a character by this name can just generally goad others into doing the wrong thing, such as when David conducts an unnecessary census in First Chronicles 21, for example. You know, when the Septuagint translators had to render the Hebrew that corresponds to Satan, they sometimes reach for the Greek word diabolos. It means a slanderer or possibly an accuser. It doesn't necessarily require that the diabolos be advancing false accusations. And ultimately, by the way, that's where we get our English word devil. None of this, though, connects back to Genesis 3 directly, right? We started wondering, when exactly does that happen? Yes, and I felt like there was fairly strong evidence for that in the New Testament. In fact, you stumbled onto some of it yourself. However, there are a few fascinating hints in earlier Jewish literature. One I wanted to mention is there's a Greek document from Hellenistic Judaism. The document's called The Wisdom of Solomon. It's part of the material Protestants call apocryphal. We don't know exactly when this document was written. It could have been as late as the time of Jesus or a few hundred years earlier. In it, though, the author dedicates an entire chapter, chapter two, to a speech by what he calls the ungodly, the pagan observer of Hellenistic Jews. Parts of that speech are unsettlingly modern. The speaker considers this life all there is, concludes that he might as well just have fun. He despises the godly because they think God has rules we ought to follow, that there's an ultimate reward, and that the godly even goes so far as to call God Father. When that speech by the ungodly concludes, the author of wisdom says the ungodly speaker was blinded by wickedness. Then he offers this curious observation. God created us for incorruption and made us in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world, and those who belong to his company experience it. That's a curious connection, it seems, back to Genesis 1 through 3. You can almost hear Paul saying it, and it sure seems like such a succinct summary of Genesis 1 through 3. Yeah, close. But I can't say that it's made a direct connection between serpent and Satan yet. True. I think we do get a little bit closer in the New Testament, don't we? It's in Revelation where we get a slew of names associated with each other, Satan, devil, snake, and dragon. Exactly. And this would be why people find Revelation so entertaining. <laughs> but you are exactly right. Uh, not once, but twice. In chapters 12 and 20, Revelation puts all four of those words together. And curiously, this is in the context of deceiving people. Oh. And I'd want to add one more connection here. It's completely offhand, but right at the end of Romans, Paul says, the God of peace will crush the Satan under your feet. 
uh, we haven't gotten to it yet, but that's part of the curse God lays on the serpent. The offspring of the man will crush the head of the serpent. That's what I immediately think of when I hear Paul say that. And I want to think that's what Paul intended, but hey, maybe I'm pushing it too far. Well, given the role Satan plays in all these contexts, accuser, tempter, deceiver, adversary, I can certainly see why people want to connect that character back to the serpent in Genesis. Sure. This general sense that there is some malevolence, if I can call it that, that tries to undo and corrupt what God intended is there throughout Scripture. And it starts right here in Genesis 3. In fact, I'd want to say that Genesis seems to suggest, indirectly at least, that the malevolence is there at creation, possibly predating humans themselves. It's natural enough to connect that with this character that always seems determined to separate humans from God. With all that said, I think we need to pause just a moment and consider this in the context of the stories of Jesus' temptation in the Gospels. John, you said humans were supposed to be something like God's vice regents. Right. We're made in the image of God, and that's what it means to be in God's image. We represent God here in creation. Well, on one reading, the temptation or testing of Jesus is a rerun of the Garden of Eden. In round one, the serpent tempts Adam and Eve and humanity falls. It fails to be what God intended. In round two, though, Satan comes face to face with the Son of God become human, the very image of God in the image of God. And this time, humanity does not fail. Whether it's a direct connection or not, Satan tries to do what the serpent did in Eden. He tries to corrupt the incorruptible, though, and gets his first hint that he's doomed to failure. Things go wrong. Yes. And in the last episode, Ron, you said the results are catastrophic. Catastrophe is a very good word for it. The relationship between God and human beings is disastrously severed. However, God does not abandon the garden, but God models justice. God questions each of them and gives them an opportunity to tell him what happened. Yes, and the humans demonstrate their new fallen nature by accusing each other and ultimately accusing God too. They're both quick to pass the buck. And as you said earlier, John, humanity has something to hide for the first time. Given the choice between life as defined by the author of life and a power grab, humans chose power. And the story from this point forward is almost monotonously tragic. Yes, yes. Not much has changed, (laughs) has it? In any case, God was the sovereign creator whose prerogative it had always been to define good and evil and to hold creation to those standards. So then, God now pronounces judgment according to those standards. We are not surprised at this because the story has given us all of the information we need to understand what's happening. Christians often refer to the curse when talking about God's response to Adam and Eve's sin. But John, you've pointed out that we have to be careful here. That's right. Precision matters on this point. God speaks in turn to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man, the same order in which each participates in the sin. Okay. What God speaks is judgment, a description, a declaration of how life will be as a self-inflicted result of the choices that each has made. However, God does not curse the man or the woman. I think a lot of Christians believe that God did, but we need to read more carefully. To curse them would cut them off from God's blessing. 
Instead, God curses the serpent and God curses the ground. Mm. The serpent will lose its place in the heavenly order and will be cast down to a lowly place. This is language symbolic of humiliation and defeat. In fact, the serpent will be consigned to ongoing struggle with humanity and ultimately to lose that struggle. In cursing the ground, the earth and humankind are no longer in their intended relationship. Instead, they will toil over the ground, having to serve it rather than it freely serving them. In a sense, humans are estranged from the land, and their intended roles in creation are disrupted. But neither the woman nor the man is cursed by God. Okay, but this is interesting. In a way, the consequence of rebellion against the Creator is simply to live in the disorder that rebellion created. Toil and struggle, Genesis' words, are the way that disorder manifests itself. Exactly. What's more, life will be contentious in its human relationships and in humans' relationship with the rest of creation. There will be struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That disorder will involve pain. When people assume God's role in declaring what is good and what is evil, only disaster can follow. With the forfeiture of life as God designed and defined it, the same ground whose bounty and blessing humanity was intended to enjoy forever will ultimately take us back. Ah, yes. The last verse of God's judgment on the man is, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. So much for humanity's divine ambitions. (laughs) Instead of becoming like God as the serpent promised, we're bound for dust. Yes. Ron, I have found it very common in the church to assume that there was something merciful about death as an outcome of human sin and the fall. That is, I often hear it expressed that to live forever in this now fallen world would be worse than to die. The rationale is something like, who would want to live forever in such a sinful world and subject to suffering and perpetual decay? But we want to be careful around such thinking, though, don't we? You've spoken to a similar idea, I think, elsewhere on the podcast. Yeah, I've insisted that death is the opposite of life. And I don't think Genesis really allows us to conclude anything else, does it? Ah, right. I can see how we can call death a mercy in certain awful circumstances. I just want us to be crystal clear. This is never what God intended for us. God intended and still intends life ongoing life, eternal life. And the argument Christians advance is that somehow in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God restored that hope to us. Yes, you're getting way ahead of the story, though, as usual, Ron. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) But you point to something that we don't want to miss. The human sin brought conflict, but victory looms. The woman would bear offspring that would defeat the serpent. Verse 20 of chapter 3 is easy to miss as very significant. It says the man named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all the living. He held to the hope embedded in the judgment. Creation would go on and life would persist in the midst of death. Humanity would continue, in other words. Eve means living one or life giver in Hebrew. Her name anticipates life. So it would appear even at this point that as powerful and real as death was, it would not have the final word on the human race that God had created.
So even as the story unfolds, the catastrophic separation between God and human beings, we've got a thin ray of hope for some victory, even if it lies only in the promise God gave the woman and the name Adam gave his wife. If you're looking carefully, you realize that chapter three has four more verses in it. Mm. The story isn't quite over yet. The ending tells us what happened to Adam and Eve. They were sent out of the garden, now clothed in animal skins, and the way back to the tree of life was guarded by cherubim and a flaming sword. Mm. That's where we're going to pick up next time in the final episode of our series. After we do that, we do plan to pull it all together. Genesis 1 through 3 is absolutely foundational to everything Scripture has to say. We cannot make sense of the story the Gospels tell about Jesus without it. But as John has said over and over, we really need to read this first few chapters of Genesis as they were intended for their original audience if we have any hope of grasping what's essential. Exactly. If we drag into it some of the concerns we have now that weren't shared by the original audiences, we're demanding the text answer questions it never intended to address. In any case, we'll conclude the story itself in the next episode and Talk about some of the theological conclusions and implications of these opening chapters of Genesis for the Christian faith. For now, though, this is where we have to wrap it up. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening. 